from One World Trade Center in Manhattan, overlooking dozens of golf courses that will never have us as members, this is the Golf Digest Podcast. Welcome to the Golf Digest Podcast. This is Sam Weinman. If you read Golf Digest and follow us online, you know the three things that we care about most are how to play golf, what to play, and where to play. And no doubt the most important thing that we do in the what to play department is the annual hot list, which is our review of the newest equipment on the market. The two driving forces behind that are senior equipment editors Mike Johnson and Mike Situra, both of whom have been doing this since the hot list's inception in 2004. Mike and Mike have long made the case that the hot list is the most important thing that Golf Digest does each year, and it's has to be the most involved and certainly the most expensive. Mike Satura, I'll start with you. Why do you feel like it is the most important thing we do each year? Well, I think the the biggest reason is confusion. Uh, I don't think there's any segment of, of golf that's more confusing to the consumer than equipment. And uh, I think our mission is to maybe alleviate some of that confusion and maybe also lace it with a fair amount of excitement. I think the, the hot list is essentially an indispensable guide and we we know that going in that that's our intent to produce this kind of uh, uh, friend on your shoulder as you go through the shopping process but we also know it in fact because we uh, we see it routinely that the hot list issue is lying around on, on country club locker rooms for four, five, six, seven, eight months after the hot list lands. I think it's it's the most important thing we do because it helps the golfer make the right decision about equipment. Yeah, I think to just follow up on that, it's it's like taking the Golf Digest editors with you into the golf shop, right? I mean, the question we get asked more often than any other by readers is, what should we play? And that's a very difficult question to answer when you've never seen someone swing a golf club or have any idea what their physical makeup is or swing speed is. So what we try to do instead to help them is kind of this compendium of golf equipment, but give them enough clues through what we write, through our rankings, through our scores, that you can narrow this down to a manageable consideration set when you start your buying process and then the rest is kind of up to you, and hopefully you do it under the guise of a qualified fitter. Mm-hmm. You've uh, you both have been part of this since the beginning. Um, when when our boss Jerry Tardy came to you originally and said, "Hey, we should do a review or rating of the best golf clubs on the market," your response was, "What? You're crazy." Uh, pretty pretty close right we were on that back road in texas when we got that phone call there may have been a few other words in that initial assessment but the point of the whole question was well the other magazines do this why don't you well as mike mentioned there's no single answer for the right equipment and and i thought to to do it in a way that was responsible probably required more effort than than maybe Jerry envisioned. And certainly over the years we've seen how much effort is required to get get the hot list uh, in a form that we think is valuable. I, I think uh, the main mission with the hot list uh, from the beginning has been fair to the industry, true to ourselves, but more more than that, helpful to the reader. And if we fulfill those three, it's a tall order, but I think that's our goal every time. 
So you mentioned the process that goes into this, which is a pretty big undertaking. And since I, my office is next to the equipment closet, I can attest to all the clubs that are coming in and out uh, of the building. So how has the process evolved? So year, year one was 2004. Um, how has that process evolved in the 12 years that it's been going on? Well, it's evolved greatly. Uh, the first year we did it, uh, obviously, we we're kind of flying blind, trying to figure out what to do. And um, we gathered a bunch of clubs that were on the marketplace ourselves. We did not in, you know, engage the industry. We did not let them know we were doing it. A little bit of a sneak attack. Um, and we kind of did self-testing that year and self-analysis and self-evaluation without any outside help. Uh, that first year when the results came out, there was a, a lot of discussion about it, and the manufacturers uh, had a lot to say. But I think mostly what they had to say is, you know, you need a better process. You, need, you actually need a process. And that led us to bring in groups of leading academics who can help us decipher the tech stories groups of retailers who can tell us what's resonating with consumers and a group of player panelists who will be able to give us unbiased opinions of what they're experiencing with the club. And those are hallmarks of our process today. Yes, we refine it year to year to year, but really from year one to year two, that was a monumental leap. And I think the the changes that we've made over the years have been to sort of make sure that that information that we gather in those sessions are as detailed and as thorough as possible. At this stage, when we do the hot list with our players right now, they don't hit a shot where an editor is not accompanying them. We have one editor assigned to every two players, and literally every shot that's hit, an editor is there discussing it with the player as he hits clubs, discussing it with the player when he finishes hitting that particular club, discussing it with the player again when he's hit the entire set of clubs. It is, you know, for lack of a better word, these players are sort of robots with an opinion. And and we make sure that we extract that opinion and then move them on to the next next assignment. But it's, I, I think it's very rigorous, and I think we will continue to make it more rigorous as, as we go on. But the the whole intent of, of our process is when we get in the room and start making some decisions as judges, we have all of this information in front of us, whether it's from our scientists or from our retailers or from our players, and we're saying, do we see trends, do we see consistencies that allow us to make a decision that this club belongs in this group and this club maybe is a notch below for various reasons within our system. So it's, uh, I like to say thorough is the most important thing about the hot list. Yeah, and it's not just that thoroughness at our summit meeting or during our deliberations. Um, we like to say the hot list isn't a some-of-the-time thing. It's an all-the-time thing, and that really holds true because a big part of what helps us with our evaluation is now we actually go to the manufacturers, uh, go to their facilities, and speak with their R&D teams. And, you know, as we like to say, there's no such thing as too much information. Uh, in essence, pretend you're on trial for your life and don't hold anything back. And so we are seeing what's coming out at times six months in advance, but that allows us the opportunity to maybe formulate some questions, to come back and consider, get a little more detail on it, allows the companies. Uh, they will write on occasion 100-page white papers on a single product, 
that uh, Mike and I might make our heads hurt, but our academic panel can really get in there and kind of dig around and come up with, you know, the answers that we're looking for, which is essentially, what did you do? Why did you do it? And why is it significant and helpful to the golfer? And how has it advanced the category? We're at the tail end of the process. I don't know if you, you would describe it as tail end, but you know the hot list is, is now out there. It's live. So well, we're we still have... doing stuff for you on the web. Of course. Okay. <laughs> In terms of actually uncovering the, the hot list and the attestment that is Mike Stichura sounds like death right now. So obviously he's, he's been put through the ringer. So what, it, what, is the, what is the most painful part of this process? And you might not use the word painful, but maybe the most difficult. Well, I mean, I think generally, whether you're talking about the industry or readers or anybody out there, is misinterpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certainly manufacturers submit their products to the hot list expecting to uh, get gold medals and five stars across the board, uh, just like anybody who's trying to win any contest. And anything less than that is a disappointment. And And then having to sort of deal with a manufacturer's disappointment that's that's never pleasant uh i think we learn more from those exchanges than than the manufacturers ever going to learn to to make them feel a little bit better um but i think you know i'm even more frustrated by the misinterpretation um by the the reader base uh there are products on the hot list that may not be gold but are silver that we think are remarkable products and should be paid attention to you know certainly they they're silver for a various array of reasons but every product that's on the hot list is worth your consideration or it wouldn't be there and i think that's that's that gets lost in counting up stars and and looking at gold medals and and uh, being disappointed or trying to thin slice uh, a four and a half star versus a five star rating this is, might be a difficult question for you to answer, but I'll ask it anyway, which is that these are all products that are being put out by professional, very proud organizations. The, when we talk about the split between the very best clubs on, on the list and the clubs that are just missing the list, how big a difference are we talking about? Are we talking about fractions? Are we talking about you know, significant gaps? You know, I think it goes back to your previous question, Sam, which is what's the most difficult part of doing this? And for me, it's discerning these degrees of excellence among the products. When we first started in 2004, we had a lot of great product on the high end. And quite frankly, there was you know some crap at the low end. Now there's not so much crap. And as the products get closer, it becomes a little more difficult to figure out just who is a little bit better than the other with their with their club. So that makes it more difficult on Mike and myself, and it forces us to be more diligent. I remember a couple of years ago, we had two drivers that we were debating for the top spot in innovation. Uh, didn't matter in the presentation in the magazine or online. They were both going to be five stars regardless, and no one would really know who was the 100 and who was a 99. But we spent 13 hours over two days debating just the merits of those two drivers until we felt confident in our decision. And I think that's really what we're looking for is folks may not agree with the results, but we have a rationale for arriving at the decisions that we did. And at the end of the process, we're comfortable and confident that we can explain those decisions. I I think it's also true that 
there are no products that didn't make the hot list in year one and two and three that would have had any chance of making the hot list now. And there are tons of products that didn't make the hot list this year that would have easily made the hot list in those first three years. So the bar has been raised considerably higher. That said, the divisions in this year's hot list between gold and silver and between silver and not making the list, we're pretty confident those divisions are clear. And, you know, I like to say you can certainly play a product that's and buy a product that's not on the hot list, but it's not with our recommendation. You guys are, are paid experts. You're as knowledgeable about this world as, as anyone. So to those who are saying, uh, what's new with drivers this year? I mean, what if you were just to take that as an example, what would you say is the biggest sort of step forward? You know, I mean, I think the, the easy answer is adjustability. Adjustability is, is much more effective, much easier to understand. Uh, you know, we've got a, a story in this year's hot list about uh, pretty much every swing flaw that you can imagine is completely or at least dramatically fixable just with the, the wrench that comes with your adjustable driver. So uh, I think what's most telling is we're seeing a lot more playable drivers with low spin, so golfers need to be aware that uh, uh, drivers are going to spin much less than they have if you haven't bought a driver in five years. That means probably more loft, generally. Uh, but I think... Uh, the, the cool thing about drivers is uh, forgiveness built in with the ability to dial in ball flight for you as opposed to one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Mike, what jumped out at you in terms of stuff that you're seeing this year as opposed to years past? Well, I'm pretty uh, intimately uh, involved in the iron section, uh, players, game improvement, super game improvement irons. And what's happening there is a continuation of the trickling down of technologies previously reserved just for drivers or metalwoods and now finding their ways into irons, namely the ability to thin out faces, achieve more ball speed, get more distance. But the great thing is where maybe a few years ago that distance was coming at the sacrifice of uh, peak height or landing angle, now you're getting you know, a six iron that behaves like a five iron but still flies into the green like a six iron. And in fact, we recently did a test taking an old five iron and a current six iron, and the six iron flies further, it goes higher, it comes down steeper. Um, You know, that's kind of the best of all worlds. You guys are renowned around the office for looking in people's bags and sort of ridiculing those people who do not have up-to-date equipment. So Yeah, you uh, disgust me every time I look. <laughs> um, so leaving uh, present company out of the equation for a second, if you look at someone's bag and they have clubs that are, say, four or five years old or even older, can you quantify how many shots they're leaving on the table? Well, I'm going to say if, if they haven't been fit for any of the clubs in their bag, uh, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, 15 to 20 yards off the tee and you know three to five shots uh you know i i just i just think it's it's not just about technology anymore but it's about the ability to take advantage specifically of that technology for you uh, you know i can't say that the the, the current crop of drivers is going to give you 20 yards but dialed in properly you know in terms of the adjustability we have the data that says it will give you 25 yards uh so i i think if you're playing old equipment that hasn't been fit to you 
uh, I'm surprised you haven't quit the game. Yeah. I think it goes to, Sam, to a question that we get quite a bit, which is always, is this year's equipment really better than last year's equipment? And the answer I always give people, I go, yes, it is, and it is. But it may be hard to tell. If you bought last year's hot driver and then you know you bought a new one this year, you may see some benefit, you may not. Um, but if you have not bought a driver in three years or have not bought a set of irons in five years, which is kind of the standard time between purchases for a lot of people, you will see noticeable differences. This idea of aggregate incrementalism uh, for improvement is real. Um, so while it may not be leaps and bounds from one year to the next, over time these improvements gathered together result in real differences that golfers will notice. Do you guys care to talk about specific manufacturers and who performed well? Or- I would say that if you are limiting your perspective on the same three or four companies that get all the attention and show up on television uh, on the PGA Tour, you are missing out on opportunities uh, in terms of innovation and performance. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the least likely candidates may provide the greatest opportunities for improvement. Well, let's talk about that for a second. That's a good point, which is that um, one of the criticisms outside toward the hot list is that it's, you know, all the major manufacturers inherently are going are gonna to do better than the smaller companies. So demand is part of the equation, but it's a small part of the equation. So, you know, market share does have a factor into it. But to those people who say, oh, you're just, you know, always rewarding the, the, the big companies, you say what? I would say the big companies do well because they do great product. But let's remember that demand is 5% of our process. Uh, the smallest companies are functional. They, they're going to get some value for their demand, and they're, they're not going to be left out of the hot list because of demand. I, I think uh, the uh, you know some of the best ideas that we saw were coming from companies that you haven't heard of, whether it was you know, cure putters or, or, you know, Yonex doesn't get a lot of credit in this country. They come up with really interesting metalwood designs. Uh, Torridge has long been toiling in obscurity, and their exotics line is as innovative as anybody with ten times the budget. So I, I think you have to be willing to be surprised. We tell our panelists, our player panelists, all the, all the time, be prepared to to be surprised. and And they go into it eager to sort of look beyond the brand names and and that's why you see products like like cure and low tide putters getting on the list they betnardi right betnardi is a name that people know but you don't see it a lot good quality stuff that uh, uh, a lot that resonates with a lot of golfers yeah i mean following up on mike's point you know i tell people big companies are big companies for a reason they invest a lot of money in R&D. They invest a lot of money in manufacturing. They invest a lot of money in materials. That should give you, most likely, a head start uh, in your ability to produce a great golf club. That said, we have had a number of products from major manufacturers that have been silver and a number of products from major manufacturers that have not even made the hot list. So it's not that they are infallible. It's just that the odds are with them because they make that investment but the fun for us is really in finding those kind of hidden gems that resonate with our panel uh, i think that's some of the most helpful 
material we offer to our reader, and uh, it doesn't matter that they're silver. You know, the the misnomer about silver is that it's somehow a lesser product, and often what it really means is that maybe the audience for this product is just a little narrower than maybe it is for somebody else, whether it be because of the way it looks or maybe they don't have as many options available. Um, the difference is kind of kind of slight, but th- that product is on the list for a reason, and there is a golfer out there that will benefit from it. Both of you guys worship at the Church of Club Fitting. I'm curious if someone said, I'm, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get fit for clubs. It just, it's just not my. I don't have the time for it. Uh, how would you recommend they use the hot list without actually seeing a club fitter? I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. I mean, the 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 time argument doesn't really wash because the it's not like a club fitting. You know, I'm. I think we're at the point now where people are gonna go hit drivers on the range and they're gonna hopefully make a decision they're not just going to waggle it in the aisle and go right to the register so if you have the time to actually hit a product you have the time to get fit for it uh certainly i think an iron purchase is so important and quite honestly so expensive why wouldn't you take the time to go through a fitting even if it's an hour Uh, i mean i think spending a thousand dollars or even five hundred dollars is worth an investment of time uh, so I, I just think it's it's so vital and it's transformational in terms of how how you play because it doesn't matter what technology has been put into a new iron or a new driver. If it is not dialed into your specs, it might as well be a driver from 1997 or it might as well be a set of irons from 1955. Uh, the, the, a chance to improve is sort of compounded by getting the right fit. And, and I think uh, people who haven't been fit really don't know what they're missing, and, and the walls they put in front of that process are, are really kind of paper and construction. And the thing that I hate about it is when I hear people say, I'm not good enough to get fit. That is so wrong, I can't tell you, because a tour player, yes, he's fit 100 ways and everything's perfect. But in many ways, that's the person who least needs to be fit Mm -hmm. because they have the skills to overcome a bad fit. The poor player, the one who is lacking in skill, they need all the help they can get, and they don't have the skills to overcome that. So really, in many ways, the worse golfer you are, the more important it is to get fit for your equipment. But I think there's a lot of guys in that gray area in between, which is like they feel like there's these gaping inefficiencies in their swing, and they feel like if I I don't want to measure my swing based on those inefficiencies. I want to measure my swing based on what I could be. And so that's why the the club fitting is uncomfortable for some people, some people being the person standing looking at you right now. Yes. (laughs) Well, are you taking lessons? (laughs) I I should be. Let's put it that way. Well, the the gaping inconsistencies, I'm guessing, are more a relation of where the ball's going. Right. There is a remarkable consistency in terms of your method of delivering the club Mm -hmm. and and the, you know, sort of even as simple as the static measurements. All of that information is pointing toward getting you better dialed in. Uh, And you could easily make the argument that your inconsistencies – are really the result of an improperly fit golf club. Related question as it pertains to adjustable drivers. Same deal, or are there things based on your ball flight at the range that you could say, oh, you know, I'm fighting a hook, I should, I can make adjustments X, Y, and Z to have it, you know, have more of a, 
of a fade bias. Yeah, you can definitely do a little self-fix uh, with adjustable drivers if you know what you're doing. And some of it is, you know, counterintuitive, but uh, it's really not that difficult to learn. If you're fighting a hook and you have the ability to move weight, uh, you want to put the, as much weight as you can out on the toe. Uh, if you want the ball to go a little bit left, you're fighting a slice or it's hanging out to the right, you want to move that weight all the way to the heel. If you have the ability to move the weight front and back, you want a more penetrating ball flight, you move it forward. You want a higher ball flight, you move it back. So a lot, you know, I think it's a great idea for people who don't feel their driver is dialed in. Get a big old bucket of balls, grab the wrench, assuming you can find it. Most people have no idea where it is. Uh, I mean, but, uh, but every go driver out. on this list is here is adjustable, by the way. Every, Everyone, yes, absolutely. Right. And uh, go out to the range and fiddle around. If you... If you don't like the setting that you put it in, just go back to where you were. You can always do that. Uh, it's the beauty of the adjustability. I remember when adjustability first came out and uh, Dick Ruggie, who was heading up the USGA's equipment department at the time, called it a gift to golfers, and I kind of snickered. But now, you know, 12 years later, that's really come to pass. No, and I, I think the the – fact is most average golfers think well i don't really have a consistent miss the beauty of the adjustable features are you are on the range and you are going to find a setting where all of a sudden you know what i'm delivering the club more consistently this way i'm more comfortable with this i've eliminated one side of the fairway with this uh, particular adjustment all of a sudden, I'm swinging with a little bit more confidence. All of a sudden, maybe there's a couple extra miles an hour club head speed, and I'm I'm longer in a way that exists independently of whatever technology they put into this thing because it's had some sort of spiritual effect on me. It's <laughs> you know you laugh, but th- it's documented. It really happens, and and I think uh, sort of just taking your driver and not adjusting it just because well I don't know what what mm-hmm. the right move is. Anything, doing anything is the right move, and 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 it's not a permanent adjustment. You can adjust as you, as your game changes too. Okay, a couple more quick questions, and then we'll let you guys go. On the hot list, the three irons categories are players' irons, game improvement, super game improvement irons. So, uh, help people distinguish between those three categories in terms of playing ability. So, where is the line between players and game improvement, for instance? Well, it, it's blending more and more all the time, at least at the extreme ends. But as a general rule, a player's iron is a club for someone who's looking to have the ability to work the ball. Maybe like something a little cleaner in look, doesn't need as much forgiveness. That's that category on a bumper sticker. The game improvement category is for one or two players. It's kind of the aspirational player who's getting a little bit better but not quite a player yet. Or it's maybe the player who's kind of sliding back up the scale. But the general thing is they need some help, but they don't need maximum help. So they want as much forgiveness as they can get while still having a club that looks okay at address to them isn't too offensive. And then super game improvement, you know, that's a tough category for people to accept because it's really kind of admitting I'm Chopper McGee out there. And, and that's a hard thing for people to do. But if you're looking for help and the ability to play your best golf, some people simply need a big, wide soul that helps them if they hit the ball fat. They need uh, a 
flexible shaft to help them get the ball in the air or a lighter shaft to help them swing faster. They need hybrids instead of long irons to make those shots at least somewhat playable. Um, So while it may be a bit of a blow to the ego, um, if you're north of an 18 handicap, you really should be looking at those clubs. Yeah, that was my that was going to bring up my next question, which is set makeup. That's certainly shifted over the years uh, to the point where you guys are big believers in the four wood over the three wood. I'm, I'm curious, sort of, where else you for the let's say a 15 handicap, you would say a good a good makeup would be what? Well, I wouldn't. I would say first get of all, get fit. Let me guess. But <laughs> I I wouldn't carry any iron. Uh, lower than a five iron, and I probably wouldn't carry any iron. Uh, you know, six iron would be a good place to start mm-hmm. your set. But but I think you know that that range. You know, once you move off the driver, that range between the fairway woods, hybrids, and iron. You know, middle irons can be populated in any number of ways. I, I think the the higher lofted fairway woods present a lot of opportunities for slower swing swingers to generate a little bit more club head speed and a little bit more height. Uh, hybrids certainly in the three, four, even five iron position, again, help you get more height. I think going back to the iron question, it's really all about height. If you can't get the ball up in the air, you should get as much of a game improvement, even super game improvement iron, as you can stand to look at. So if you have a pretty low trajectory with your iron shots, that's a pretty good sign that you need a little bit more help. You need a lot of things, but I would say uh, more help rather than less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when it comes to the set, um, I think people need to look at the other end of the bag, too, and at their wedges. Uh, You know, four wedges may just sound tour pro cool, but it's actually something that a lot of golfers mid handicappers and up even should look at because the simple fact is if you're only hitting two three four even five greens around that means you're missing 13 or more that leaves you with a lot of shots around the green and your best chance to be able to score is to have enough tools to handle the variety of those shots especially because as everyday players who don't practice much that half shot is kind of the dreaded shot so yeah, it might be cool to stack your bag with a bunch of, you know, driver and a bunch of woods. And all. I'm a big fan of four wedges, evenly gap them out. You have a pitching wedge, a 50, a 54, a 58, something along those lines. If you just have a pitching wedge and a sand wedge, that's like a two to three club gap between those clubs, and you have no versatility. Yeah. And, and there are more opportunities to fit that end of the bag than there's ever been before, even to the point where somebody like Cleveland has a you know, a very simple system where you make three swings and, and answer a few questions, and they've got your entire wedge makeup dialed in right there. Yeah, I mean, I'm the opposite of Tor Pro Cool, and I carry four wedges. And well, I you're not like cool well, at yeah, all. Yeah, I know. Okay. That's a fair point. So that, that's a good point. So if you had $1,500 to, to spend, we're not talking about an insignificant amount of money, but, you know, some of that money or a lot of that money should be going towards the actual clubs, but also towards the fitting as well. That's kind of what your, your prescription is. I would, and, you know, if – Whatever the amount of money that you want to spend is is a portion to to fitting, and that eats into buying more clubs. Start with the fitting and get less clubs. That's another. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, taking that analogy a step further, you have fifteen hundred dollars to buy a suit, right? Well, you can spend it on a fifteen hundred dollar suit that doesn't even remotely fit you, or you can buy less of a suit and have it fit perfectly. Which one do you want? 
I'm taking the suit that fits perfectly. Yeah, I don't own a suit, so that's a bad one. This is obvious. Yeah, that, actually, that's the last question. This is I promise my last question. If you were, if you had to get fit for one club, driver, or would you say irons? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would probably go irons. Uh, they're more precise tools. Um, so things like getting the right lie angle are very important. The right length is very important. And also with all the adjustability in drivers, if you're not properly fit, there's at least the chance after the fact that you might be able to figure it out or at least your buddy might be able to figure it out for you. So I think if it were me, I would go irons. I would go the club you use the most, the putter, and it's the cheapest to get fit. And putter fitting entails what? Uh, it's it's as simple as making some strokes and, and having uh, a camera system or uh, other type of analysis system look at how you're uh, contacting the face. Uh, it's as simple as a situation that you might not need to buy a new putter. They might be able to make those adjustments on your current putter. I'm not necessarily endorsing that because I think the new crop of putters is much better than anything that's out, been out there before. But I do think that putter fitting is easily the most overlooked fitting that you can go through okay. very good stuff guys your your knowledge is hugely impressive and i'm not just saying that because you sit next to me anything else before i let you go that you want to talk about the hot list again it's going to be it's online on at golfdigest.com um, and mike and mike will be uh, providing more insight as the month goes on about uh, the, the process behind the hot list and and everything else that went into it well, I find it odd he talks about putter fitting, but he took a divot on a putt during our member guests. So, for example, that you need to be fit. I would say don't forget that it's supposed to be fun. I mean, there's so much cool stuff in the hot list that, you know, you're not supposed to buy everything, but there's enough in here that uh, uh, there's a flavor of candy for anyone. Very good. Mike Satura, Mike Johnson, thanks so much for joining me. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks again to Mike Stachura and Mike Johnson for joining me on this week's Golf Digest podcast. Please check out this month's hot list uh, in the March issue and online at golfdigest.com. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a review and a rating, preferably a good one. And please check back next week to see who our guests will be.